Our next speaker is uh, Dr. Andrew Ryan. He's an associate professor in marine biology at Roger Williams University in Bristol, Rhode Island. Uh, Andy's got a vast wealth of knowledge in ornamental aquaculture. Uh, his labs have produced several firsts for the ornamental aquaculture world, including the queen triggerfish. Uh, and more recently, he and his lab have begun to look at cyanide detection and how that might be feasible for wild-caught fisheries. Uh, so I'm going to hand the mic over to Andy Ryan, and he's going to present on a cyanide detection test, myth or reality. Please put your hands together. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I, I'm going to spend the next uh, 45 minutes or so uh, going through some results that uh, we've, uh, we've gained, we've, some data we've gathered over the last five years or so. Uh, I gave a talk last year uh, at MAGNA on this topic, and uh, this is kind of an update on that uh, with some additional data that we have. Um, so, cyanide detection tests have been around, you know, that, that topic has been around for a very long time. And the, the topics of cyanide and the issues of cyanide have been around for a long time. And it wasn't until fairly recently that we got involved with this. And, and really that's through the work of, uh, I work with a really remarkable analytical chemist at Roger Williams. And she's, uh, she's been great to help us uh, with the instrumentation. Um, and then we have a whole group of undergrads uh, that, that work on this with us. And then um, uh, Alex Bonanno is here. Uh, he's a graduate student of uh, Michael Telusti's lab. He works in our lab with this. And then we've also been very fortunate to have a really great industrial partner, uh, and Lawrence, uh, or Larry Andre, he's uh, at Dominion Diagnostics, and they're a, basically a drug testing company. Uh, they have a large uh, suite of analytical equipment for looking at uh, uh, opio opioids in uh, human urine, basically, and other types of uh, diagnostic testing. So they've afforded us the use of their, uh, their next generation equipment. We've also been very fortunate to, um, I've self-funded a lot of this work until very recently. So up until last year, I had funded all of the work ourselves out of our lab, um, and we've kind of scrapped, scraped together. And, um, and last year, Petco and, and PJAC uh, gave us a, a very um, sizable amount of money to continue to try to gather some data and answer some of these questions. So that's been very, very, uh, very helpful. And without that, I really wouldn't be able to show you some of the data that I'm going to show you today. And um, and the, the work that Alex's thesis is based on. So at Roger Williams University, we've, we have a, a partnership with the New England Aquarium, and we run an aquarium science aquaculture program. It's a very innovative program. It's an all undergraduate program. And we do a few things. Uh, we have an un aquaculture aquarium science curriculum. And then we develop protocols for rearing of species, mainly for public aquariums. And we do uh, some uh, hobby uh, level fish as well. You've seen the Yasagobis that we produced and some other things as well. I've been interested in aquaculture for 25 years or so and, and been uh, working on ornamental fish for about that long. Uh, and so this, this lab affords us a, a, lot, of, a lot of really um, exciting opportunities. Um, and we've been working on the, the aquarium fisheries and the trade in aquarium fish. Michael Telusti and I have for the last, uh, last 12 years or so. Um, and so that's kind of the, the suite of what we work in. Um, and aquarium science at Roger Williams is a very vibrant undergraduate program. Uh, and you can talk to two of the undergrads here today. Um, so uh, we do lots of different things. So Gabby's got, uh, uh, 
worked on a mathematical model and she can tell you about that at the poster session. Um, and then Olivia um, is really interested in the husbandry aspect of what we do and so she, her thesis uh, is on sulfur denitrification and so she's working on uh, kind of understanding the relationship of ORP and nitrate removal and some other things going on in sulfur denitrators. Uh, so we have a really interesting uh, program. We, I maintain a large data source for um, of trade and species, so uh, about five years ago or so we, we put out a, a series of papers and, and we put this website out that kind of gives an overview and gives public access to, uh, to information on where species are going and where they're coming from. This is trade into the United States that we have gathered uh, over a long period of time. And I work quite a bit with CITES and if you were in here for the other talk, you, there was a little bit of questions about how CITES and corals and things work and I know that um, PJAC just came back from the CITES meeting. I've been watching that on Twitter. And uh, it's a very complicated international regulatory system. Uh, but I just want to show you the importance of understanding trends and data uh, and, and what can happen when, when either countries allow or disallow import and export. So this is live clams coming into the United States from 20, uh, 2000 to 2017. Uh, about 60,000 60, clams a year. Uh, most of them were coming from Vietnam. And these were, these were wild for the most part. There's some aquaculture clams in there as well. Um, but then uh, the, the U.S. and other countries stopped uh, accepting uh, Vietnamese imports of, of clams for disease purposes and some other reasons. And, um, and you can see how they completely shifted the trade network and really, really restricted the number of clams coming in. And so that actually impacts hobbyists in many different ways. Um, and so CITES and, and these other things are very important for you to kind of stay on top of and understand because they really impact you. And I think uh, tomorrow night's banquet talk will probably give you a better overview of that, how, how that impact can happen to uh, not just here in the United States, but globally with the coral trade. So my group really asked this question a lot. What is the role of the marine aquarium trade in coral reef conservation? And, and so we kind of look at that. And this is, this is really an idealistic view of, of of the trade in corals is you're supporting a lot of livelihoods when you buy mariculture corals, right? And this is a lot of income into areas where you, you're supporting families and, 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 and businesses in the countries where these corals are from. And that is a very powerful thing to be able to do. Um, and it's a very idealistic uh, kind of view of the trade. So uh, some of the challenges with the trade are these dispersed and distant supply chains. So, most people who buy fish really have no way of knowing where their fish come from. And that poses a lot of challenges. Uh, so most of our fish come from the Indo-Pacific, the wild fish, and most of them come from the Philippines and Indonesia. And there's a whole other series of networks and trade uh, flow that happen that bring other species in, but the vast majority of these come from Indonesia and the Philippines. Um, and Cannes Marine has put out this really great graphic that kind of illustrates this. And I used to show this really noisy graphic of a supply chain and then they, they, put, they had this really uh, nice graphic so I've been using it for several years but it's, it shows you how noisy this supply chain is and how hard it is to actually know where your fish come from. And that raises some real questions and problems uh, when it comes to uh, sustainability or to uh, knowing where, if those fish were ethically handled or caught in that supply chain. So the longer the supply chain, the more difficult that is. And sometimes it's a hard concept for people to understand, but it really, it's, it's true in, everyday, in our everyday lives. And, and the example I like to show people uh, is uh, the example of clothing, right? So almost no one knows who made their clothes, right? And, and so those clothes can either be made by someone that's supporting their family, or they can be made by some one working in a sweatshop that you know is in a very dangerous factory, right? And you have absolutely no idea. 
because it's a very long, diffuse, dispersed supply chain. Right? So when you buy your clothes, you probably aren't thinking about that when you buy your clothes. And it turns out a lot of people don't think about that when they're buying fish either. What's the reality of where those fish are coming from? And so um, Julian's talk really raised a lot of really good questions. And, and I would argue that if, if the aquarium trade is going to survive in the long-term future, then we must have a lot better data and a lot better transparency of those supply chains because they need to be assessed and, and assured that they are uh, not only ethically handling animals, but that people in these areas are, 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 are being, um, you know, they're, they're, they're being uplifted economically and they're, they're treating their habitats and their areas better than they would have without the aquarium trade. And that is a really, really positive and strong argument to make for the continuing the trade of animals across borders. CITES really is, uh, you know, when it comes to looking at trade, CITES and IUCN really are looking at livelihoods, right? And so having a strong livelihood component to this trade makes it a very valuable thing to these very small or these very rural areas that are, that are, can be quite distant and can have very small economies or, or, or very few available jobs uh, for people. And so, so that's something that's very important, but you need data and transparency to ensure that. And this is a really good example of that. So when this article came out, um, it really caught the attention of a lot of people. Uh, and it really made a lot of people in the aquarium trade really angry. Because, uh, you know, this has been a touchy subject for a long time. It's known by a lot of people that, that are, some number of fish are caught with cyanide in the aquarium, in the marine aquarium trade. Uh, but they put a number on here, uh, 90 up to 90%, right? And that number was so out there and so far off from reality that, but it, but it really resonated when you read that because it means, basically means almost all of your fish are caught with cyanide. And I don't know anyone who wants to buy a cyanide caught fish. I, I have not met anyone who's, who's, you know, that's something they would, they would say that's a positive, right? And so this really bothered people a lot because they felt like this was a, an attack on the trade and it was very unfair. And we spent quite a bit of time working with the, uh, the reporter that wrote this story to kind of educate them on the, um, on the realities of the, the supply chain and, and what that number actually looked like. Uh, and I'll get back to where that number came from in a little bit. But this is an old, old paper. Um, it wasn't old when I was young, but now I'm not young anymore. So, uh, um, but I wanted to show you that, that, and I like using this in black and white because it shows you that this has been going on for a long time. So this issue is, is around 50 years old or so. And it, it has gone through a boom and bust as far as how widespread and how much of an issue it was, but it was a real issue in the 80s and 90s, and there's some debate now of, of, of how much cyanide fishing is occurring, but it was widespread throughout the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and so if you were buying fish from the Indo-Pacific, which most of our fish come from the Indo-Pacific, and you have no transparency or window into that supply chain, then odds are that you are buying fish that are caught with cyanide. Um, and so that is a real challenge uh, to deal with. And so, um, you know, that's kind of the premise of where we were when we started with this, is to try to, is to, try to look at this. Um, and so, to understand how this works and to try to develop a test, you really have to understand how cyanide impacts an organism. So cyanide disrupts oxygen metabolism, basically. It, it binds to cytochrome oxidase, and you don't need to know any of this, really, other than you just need to know that it's a paralytic. So it basically paralyzes the fish. Right? So if you expose a fish to cyanide, the fish essentially is paralyzed, right? And so oxygen metabolism stops and it goes, through, it goes into anaerobic metabolism. It basically is just paralyzed. It can't move. Um, when we do this in the lab, and we've, we've been exposing fish to cyanide for, for about four or five years now, um, 
all of our fish pretty much always recover and it takes them between 8 and 20 minutes to recover. Uh, but we do it under very controlled conditions. Uh, in the field, it's not nearly as controlled and these fish have a lot more stress and you can't really, that, that's where the mortality probably comes in. But we have very low mortality in this part of our studies because we're trying really hard not to kill these fish, right? Um, we want to expose them to sublethal levels of cyanide and then be able to look at that. Um, and so, um, but it is a paralytic, so it basically paralyzes them. And that's why it's used is because you can just pick these animals up. So the Philippines um, developed a, a test along with, the, well, it was developed by, uh, by IMA, and then the Philippines started using it. And they had a, a cyanide detection network. Uh, very, very laborious test, very challenging test to do in the lab. Um, and, uh, and, and requires a, you know, quite a complex array of equipment to be able to do this. Uh, and basically what you do is you blend the fish up. So if you've ever seen the bassomatic, you basically put the fish in the blender, you blend the fish up and you make a fish smoothie. Then you add that to a, to a container and you acidify it and you just basically get the cyanide to gas off and you capture that, right? Uh, and they have a whole protocol and a test and they actually issue cyanide detection certificates. And so if you're moving fish across boundaries in the, in the Philippines and putting them on airplanes, you actually still have to go through this. Uh, and this test was uh, really developed for the food fish, and, but has also been employed for, uh, uh, for the aquarium fish. And, and there's been quite a bit of work done on this. Peter Rubrik published a lot of papers and, and really was instrumental in the development of this. Um, and it appeared that this test worked, right? So when they were testing, right, they noticed over a period of time that the number of fish that were testing positive, right, went down. And so you would expect that, right? If you're drug testing, people that are using drug, right? If, right these things type, tend to go down some level. Um, and so it appeared that testing worked. Um, and they still use this today in the Philippines. So they're still using this, um, this method to test in the Philippines. It's primarily used for the live fish trade of the live fish for consumption, right? Um, and uh, you, if you do a Google search on this, you'll come up with results where basically the, the live fish traders really are, what they complain about is how long it takes to get results back, right? Uh, because it's, it takes an, several hours to generate the test. You have to take it someplace, right? Very, very complicated. I wanted to show you a little bit of, of, of some of the interesting things that you find when you start really looking into this test. Um, so is this cyanide detection test robust? Right? Uh, if you think about it, if you're testing people's fish for, for presence of cyanide, you, you don't want false negatives and you don't want false positives. So you don't want to let people go if their fish were caught with cyanide but, and you couldn't find it. And you also don't want to confiscate fish that you say are caught with cyanide uh, that actually weren't. Right? So you have to have a robust test. And so if you look at when this test was developed, some of the some really interesting things come up. And one of the most interesting results came up was this. Was this. Uh, this is a tremendous dose, right? This would kill pretty much any animal on the planet, uh, pretty instantly. It's, al it's almost impossible to get that much cyanide into an animal. Uh, and so how would a test like that find that level, right? Um, and one of the challenges with, with this type of test is it really was never validated on fish that were exposed to cyanide in a controlled way. So we've been exposing fish in, to, in our lab to cyanide, but this test was basically validated on, on using aqueous substances or, or, or purees of fish and then adding cyanide to that and then trying to detect it. It wasn't necessarily validated by exposing fish to cyanide, then blending them up and then testing it at different levels to look at how long could you test a fish for, right? None of that work was ever done. Um, and then also it uses an ion selective electrode. Uh, and selective is a really good word because it's only sort of selective, 
right? And there's a lot of interferences and false positives that can come from this. And so, um, so that, that, that raises some real challenges. And so, um, you know, that causes you to really have to question, you know, the validity of a test like this, right? So another real issue with this topic is, is that there's essentially been no work on cyanide fishing uh, compared to other problems. So when lionfish showed up in the Atlantic Ocean, you know, it took a little while, but then all of a sudden there's a lot of master's theses and publications out on lionfish and the impacts they've been having in the Atlantic and their, the population structure and the flow of them. Uh, so you had a problem show up, right, and people started studying it. But with cyanide, there's basically been no real long-standing research uh, in that topic for, for a period of time, even though this has been occurring for about 50 years or so. Um, and so that's a real challenge because if you're going to solve a problem like this and you need some type of testing mechanism or if you need to deal with, you know, how do you train, uh, you know, how do you get cyanide fishermen to start using nets and stuff, the more data, the more studies you have, the more likely you are to, to come up with a positive solution to that. And so uh, a paper came out in 2012, and uh, they made some, some interesting claims. Uh, they basically said that they had a non-invasive test to be able to test the water that fish had exposed in for cyanide. And this really got our attention. Uh, we had been kind of uh, working on some, this topic for a while, but we hadn't really been that in-depth working on uh, the cyanide uh, detection test. But this really caught our attention. The first thing I wanted to do when I saw this paper come out was I wanted to replicate the work because I felt it was probably the most important, one of the most important papers I'd seen in a long time. And if we could replicate it, it would be, you know, we could demonstrate it was a robust test and you could start employing that. Uh, so just some quick background. The way this works basically is that cyanide uh, is taken in by an organism that's very toxic. And so the organism, all, all organisms basically have a, a pathway to detoxify cyanide and, and they basically convert cyanide into a non-toxic compound or less toxic compound, thiocyanate. Um, and so if you, any smokers are in the room, you have quite a bit of this in your saliva and blood because you're breathing in cyanide with the cigarette smoke and your body is converting that cyanide over to thiocyanate. If it didn't do this, you would build up cyanide in your body and eventually it would kill you. Right? Um, if you eat a lot of seeds or almonds or anything like this, right, there's quite a bit of cyanide in, in, in bitter almonds or some of these other things, and your body has to deal with those. So you're, you're constantly taking in small amounts of cyanide, and your, your body is constantly metabolizing that over into thiocyanate. Okay? And this is rapidly excreted in mammals. So uh, this process is highly conserved, so you would expect to see this process um, in, in lots of organisms. So they claim that you could detect thiocyanate in the water of fish that had been exposed to cyanide for 28 days post-exposure, right, which is a remarkable period of time because that means you could test inside the country you're importing in and you would know if the fish had been exposed, right? And that brings in a lot of powerful laws in the United States if, you're, if you can test for that, all kinds of interesting things. So um, the, uh, the other thing I, wanna, I want you to look at that is the error bars on this graph. So uh, if you're a biologist and you look at this, right, and you actually pointed this out, if this is, it didn't no, we didn't notice it for several years, but uh, these are really remarkably small error bars, right? And um, you know, biological organisms generally don't behave that well, right? Um, and so uh, really challenging to, 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 to reproduce a study that has uh, very low error bars, or this is a really easy study to reproduce, one, one of the two. Um, and, and so they, were, they said that basically you didn't see any thiocyanate for the first uh, couple days 
and then after that you started seeing thiocyanate and then it peaked at around day 21 or so and continued and they didn't test the fish past that and so it looked like it just continued to excrete this compound out of the fish into the water right and you could test the water right uh, it's an immensely promising idea because you don't have to kill the fish right you can just take the fish and hold the fish and put it in a container with clean water and then test the water and you would know if, if the fish was tested with if the fish had been uh, exposed to cyanide um, and and they had two levels of cyanide and then they had controls where they didn't see anything at all. Um, and so uh, a few years after this paper came out, I was in Hawaii at a coral reef meeting uh, and I was sitting in a, uh, a session of talks and um, Renee Umberger and Craig Downs presented a talk where they claimed to have replicated this work. Now, there were two other people in the audience, uh, myself and a guy from uh, Germany who had been trying to replicate this for several years. Right? And so we were, we were very interested in this talk because we had spent a lot of time trying to replicate this test, uh, exposing fish in the lab, right? And uh, here was a talk. We wanted to know what we were doing wrong, basically. Why couldn't we replicate it? And so they basically said that 51% of the fish they tested tested positive for thiocyanate. Uh, and then there's some really remarkable numbers in here. Uh, the one that got my attention the most was this one, right? Was uh, the blue-green chromis. Um, I've, uh, I've worked in Indonesia for, for a number of years and, and, and I have regular uh, conversations with fishermen who used to use cyanide and, and none of them had ever caught a, a blue, they were, they were stunned when they saw this because and these are fishermen who used to catch fish with cyanide that now catch fish with nets and you know, they, they were just like, why would anyone use cyanide to catch blue-green chromis? And so uh, that raised a lot of eyebrows. So um, we continued to try to validate these claims. Right, because we felt it was really, really important to, to, to validate that. So we're exposing fish in the lab, and, and then uh, we put the water on our instrument. We got very good at this. Uh, this is just a chromatogram that shows uh, these are our, um, this is our standard. So this is the peak we're looking at on thiocyanate. Uh, so this is an exposed fish, nothing. Uh, this is a negative control fish, so not exposed, nothing. And then this is a positive control, right, where we put 20 parts per uh, billion in the water uh, with the fish and we could find something, right? Uh, so we, we tested hundreds of samples for years and could never find anything. Uh, so really, really um, uh, challenging uh, problem. Science doesn't do very well with negative results either. So you're supposed to get some kind of result. And one thing that I've noticed, if you're around undergrads long enough, you do things in labs that don't work often enough, it really drives them crazy that uh, nothing seems to work. Right? So, but negative, so negative results are kind of challenging to work with because uh, you don't have anything to really show for what you've done. And I absolutely love this cartoon, right? So you've been working for a long time, right? But I, you know, I've been doing a lot, so you have nothing, right? So, um, uh, so we literally had nothing, right? We used two different analytical methods, really powerful methods, and, uh, and had nothing except uh, we, we noticed a paper came out from Germany. They had published that they also couldn't find anything. And so that really got us thinking. And so Nancy was uh, uh, picking her daughter up at college, waiting for her to finish a final, and she's just started doing a little bit of math. And uh, I'm not going to bore you with the math here, but I, I'm just going to show you a little bit of it. Uh, but basically, they had these fish in a liter and a half of seawater. These were really small fish. Uh, and then they found about 235, 239 micrograms of, of thiocyanate over the 28-day period is what you can average out they recovered. Uh, that's a very small amount, but it's actually quite a bit. Right? And that turns into, 100, that would have to be 107 micrograms of cyanide, 
right? So what is that? That's a very small number, right? It's very hard to get your head around a microgram, right? If you take medications like, you know, like Advil or aspirin or something, those are in milligrams, right? You'll notice like extra strength aspirin is like, you know, maybe 200 milligrams or something, right? So this is much smaller than that. So is 107 micrograms a lot of cyanide, right? Cyanide, almost everyone knows it's a deadly poison. You definitely wouldn't get around it if it was there, right? But is 107 micrograms a lot? It really depends on how big you are. If you're an elephant, it's not very much, right? But if you're a two gram fish, right, it's a whole lot, right? Or a mouse even, that's a lot, right? And so, uh, so you have to look at the mass balance and how much these animals weigh and then how much that is. And we, we did that math and um, we published this uh, in, a, in a paper rebutting their work and we basically show the plausible ranges. So some work had been done by David Bellwood in the 1980s and he published this in a FAMA uh, magazine article where he exposed uh, some damsels to radioactive cyanide and we were able to calculate an approximate dose from that exposure because he reported the radioactivity of these, the, the fish after he exposed them. And so it's somewhere in here below a milligram per kilogram. Uh, which is a, a very low dose. And, and then most animals will die if you give them more than four milligrams per kilogram. Pretty much anything on the planet will die uh, from that dose, right? And the dose from this study was somewhere in the 78 milligrams per kilogram range, enough to kill many, 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 many fish, right? And so uh, that pretty much did it for us, right? We were, we were done with that method after, we did the, after Nancy did that math. She called me and sent me photos of her doodling on uh, napkins and stuff. And so, um, so I get this question a lot. Um, you know, uh, did they make it up, right? So clearly something's not right. Right? And so, uh, and I've never heard a good explanation of how those results ended up in, in the paper or uh, in that presentation. Uh, but they're not possible. And so, you know, you have to go with your best, uh, the best next choice there, right? So something, something definitely is wrong uh, that has happened in those papers. I've put, I've asked the journal to retract the papers and I continue to do that as we get more data uh, because they're just, they just should not be uh, in the scientific literature. Um, so once we had determined that this, this data wasn't really possible, it allowed us to think about the system a little differently. And so that's what I'm going to show you now. So it's really hard sometimes when you're, when you're focused and you're working on a, and your preconception is, is that we should be able to expose fish to cyanide and test the water. We were stuck for four years doing that because that was supposed to work. So we were stuck in that mental framework. And the second Nancy did that math, we stepped out of that mental framework and we were like, what, what, where the hell would it be, right? If, it's, if we expose the fish, it's somewhere. Where would it be? It would be in their blood, right? So we started bleeding the fish, right? Um, and uh, so I, uh, I had bled a few fish in my career, but not a lot, right? And not small fish, right? So we, start, we, we, had to, we had to come up with a way to bleed these tiny, tiny fish, right? These are, these are like two to five gram clownfish. They're really small. Uh, we worked that out in the lab, and then uh, Alex, I showed Alex how to do it, and I've never done it since. Actually, I've maybe once in the last six months or so, right? But, uh, but we're, we're very good at this, and we're able to, uh, to bleed these fish and, and get their plasma, right? So this is the fluid that basically is in the, without the blood cells, right? So that's where all the interesting things are at. And then we just injected that right into the instrument. This is the day we did this one. We just put it right into the instrument raw just to see if we could find it. And sure enough, we found it right away. First time we had seen thiocyanate in a biological sample in five years. We were pretty excited, right? And so this opened up a whole avenue of research for us. And, we, and so I'm going I'm to walk you through some of that. Um, 
So we exposed uh, uh, the amphibion oscillaris to 100 parts per million thiocyanate. Right, so this is the, bi this is the met met metabolic byproduct of being exposed to cyanide, but we wanted to give them this uh, at a really high level because this made it really easy for us to find it, right? And so if this is what they're excreting or they're, they're eliminating out of their system, this is our target. So we wanted to see what its half-life was. So how long does it stay in the plasma post-exposure? So we exposed them for 10 days to this, right? Um, it's, very, it's, you know, it's, it's a fairly uh, benign uh, compound to, to an animal at that level. Um, and then we took them out and we depurated them. So we put them in clean water, right, and we held them for a period of time. And each data point is a sample of a fish that we bled, right, at different time points. And then we measured the thiocyanate in their plasma. And what you should notice is, is that the thiocyanate rapidly drops off really very, very quickly. So the half-life is really short for this. So they're eliminating this out of their blood plasma really fast. Um, and then there seems to be some that stays around in this species for a long time. So that got us kind of excited, right? So then what we did after we did that was is we exposed fish to cyanide. And so we exposed them to 50 parts per million, and this is, uh, this is data from 45-second exposures. And we saw basically the same thing minus the fact that because they're exposed to cyanide, if you measure them very early, they're converting cyanide into thiocyanate in the first few hours. So you find that the levels of thiocyanate go up in their blood and then it sits rapidly back down. So they're eliminated out of their blood very, very, very quickly, right? Um, so the half-life is less than a day for this. Um, so it's not gonna stay around very long. But then we also saw this really interesting tail. So it just seemed to hang around in their blood plasma at very low levels uh, after the test. So um, this is all one, one species. We published this paper um, and uh, you know, um, we always get feedback that says, well, why aren't you doing Amphibiron clarkii, basically, right? The same species that was published in that other paper that we, uh, that we refuted. And so uh, we took that opportunity to go ahead and look at its half-life as well, because if you're going to develop a test that can be used on a wide range of species, we need to look at this across a bunch of different species. And so uh, we exposed uh, Amphibiron clarkii to, uh, to cyanide, again, 50 parts per million for, for 45 seconds. And its half-life is actually faster than the oscillaris, but really rapidly eliminates this, this compound from its blood plasma. Um, again, we're working on the framework that uh, we're working on the framework that the uh, that cyanide is taken in by the organism. And just to give you a little overview of how that works, marine fish drink a lot of water, right? And so uh, they drink water and they basically excrete those salts out their gills and also uh, they defecate a lot of, uh, of, of carbonates, right? So they, they drink a lot of water and then they also bring compounds over their gills, right? So when you put a fish, when you expose a fish to cyanide, there's two mechanisms for cyanide to be taken up. One is by the fish drinking a lot of water, several, you know, I mean, it's a lot of water for a small fish that is full of cyanide. And the other is through their gills, right? So if, if they drink water with cyanide, that cyanide is going to go through their gut into their bloodstream, directly into their bloodstream, and then react with them. If it comes through their gills, it's directly into their bloodstream. So if you expose uh, fish to uh, cyanide, then you should get thiocyanate, right? And we demonstrated that, and we demonstrated that with several species, that if we expose fish to cyanide, we get thiocyanate in the, in the blood plasma. But again, our framework our mental framework has always been about excretion into the water, 
right? That's where, that's where we had fixed our minds, that, we, that fish were going to excrete thiocyanate into the water. And so we were still hung up on this, right? That, that where is it going, right? Where is the thiocyanate going? And, and we speculated in our paper on the oscillaris that they would be excreting it out their gills through their chloride cells, just like chloride ions. And it would leave, that's why there was such a rapid uh, half-life as they were flushing it out of their gills very, very quickly. Um, and so that's an interesting uh, thought to have, but it's probably not true, right? And we know that now because we have some really interesting data. And I'll, I'll show you just a teeny bit of that, and then I'll, I'll point you to Alex's poster. Um, so where does this go? And so we just got some really amazing data back in the last few weeks uh, that really caused us to change the way we're thinking about where this compound goes and how can we test for it. Uh, so we put uh, Clarky clowns in thiocyanate for about 10 days or so. Uh, to let them accumulate that up. And then we rinse them really well, trying to get it off of them as best we possibly can, right? And then we put them in a container and sample the water, right? And so, um, so we sample the water for a period of over a 24-hour period, and we sample the water really, really commonly. Now, we did this for a couple reasons. One of the questions that PJAC asked us to answer, right? They, they wanted us to answer several questions. One of the questions they wanted to know was, could you generate a false positive result from fish that have been around other fish that have been exposed to cyanide, right? Could they pick up thiocyanate from the water? And then if you tested them for thiocyanate and you found it, would you say they were positive when they actually weren't? Because, and you can imagine that's, that's a terrible result to have if you think that fish are positive for cyanide, but they actually aren't, right, for various reasons. So, so this is one reason we wanted to look at this. And the other reason was is we were really interested in, in trying to find out where this thiocyanate was going. Because this whole time, right, we're focused on... Oh, hmm. Maybe. This whole time we were focused in on, um, let's see here. There we go. I got it. didn't like the, uh, some key I pushed on here. So this, this whole time we were focused in on, um, uh, we're focused in on thiocyanate leaving the fish going into the water, right? And so we've been testing the water occasionally because we were still curious, could we ever see it? We're exposing the fish to a lot of thiocyanate, really high levels, right? And there's a lot in their blood plasma, right? And there should be some in the water and we have really good analytical methods so we should be able to find it. And so we kept testing occasionally to try to find it, right? And uh, so, so we sample the water over a 24-hour period. They sampled every several hours, right? And then we look at that water. Uh, and sure enough, we find thiocyanate in the water, right? But then it goes away. So the fish take it back up, right? And so this is very interesting. And Alex will talk to you about this at his poster in great detail. Um, it's a very interesting result. But we basically put the fish in it. There seems to be some thiocyanate somewhere. And then it goes away. Right? And so where is it going? Right? Um, we think it stays in the fish. We don't think it ever leaves the fish. Right? 
And so, again, our mental framework has been around fish excrete thiocyanate into the water. And the reason my mental framework is around that is because we read a paper, right, that said fish excrete thiocyanate into the water. Now, we demonstrated that, that study was not possible, but still our mental framework is, is sitting around fish excrete thiocyanate into the water. So, we, I brought a toxicologist to the lab uh, last summer to, to kind of go through this with us, right? I flew him out to the lab and, and uh, to educate us on a little bit of toxokinetics, right? Toxicology, because that's not who we are, right? I have a really great aquarium science program. I'm not a toxicologist, right? But we, we've been playing toxicologist a little bit and working through this. And we've been doing this because no one else in the world has been doing any research on this. And we're trying to drive some research and get other people interested. So we went through this whole mechanism. We've kind of been learning about toxicology and, and pathways and, and single compartment models, which is what we thought we had, which is the fish takes it up, metabolizes it like we would, and it pees it out, essentially, or leaks it out its gills, right? But this is actually a, a much more complicated model than that, right? This is the fish takes cyanide in, converts it to thiocyanate, it's in its blood plasma, and then it goes away out of the plasma. But it's not going into the water, so it has to be going somewhere else. And it's probably in the muscle, right? So the muscle's a large reservoir. Right? And, uh, and so the muscle is a fairly large reservoir, and, and the blood, if you think about it, is circulating throughout all the muscle tissue, and it's giving up some of that. And so that half-life we're seeing is it going from plasma to muscle tissue, right? And we, in, our, in our most recent paper, we showed two half-lives for, for thiocyanate, one fast and one slow. And that slow half-life is probably diffusing back out of the, the muscle tissue into the plasma. So it's a very complicated system that's happening, but it appears it's all locked up in this fish, right? Um, there's been debate over the years about how fast fish metabolize cyanide into thiocyanate, and this whole cyanide detection test that the Philippines have been running is based on the fact that that should be fair, a period of days. But we really think that's a period of hours, but that work has never been done, and it needs to be done to, to figure that out. But we, if you think about it, you have this compound that disrupts oxygen metabolism. If it was still hanging around, if that compound was still hanging around in this, this, these animals, right, they would be highly compromised and probably die. Right? So animals have to convert this over very quickly. But we're fairly confident now that the fish tissue is a reservoir for thiocyanate. Um, and so that's where it's at. We still have quite a bit of work to do, uh, but you should go see Alex's poster on this. He's got a lot of really interesting data on this. Um, and uh, he'd love to talk to you about this. We've had him in the lab almost nonstop for a year and a half now, right? So, uh, um, and he's worked really hard to come up to speed on all the crazy analytical chemistry you have to get up to speed on with this and also the, the biology side of it. So. Um, so now we have data that suggests that the fish aren't actually releasing the thiocyanate into the water at all. Um, and so if, if they're not releasing it into the water, right, uh, then where is it going? How could it possibly, how could you possibly have a test where you can test the water, right, if that's not happening? So we still have a little ways to go, but, but you know, we really don't think that that prior work or any of the, any of the, uh, the, 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 the press uh, release that, that For the Fishes put out that, and the presentation they gave has any validity to it at all, right? We're very confident about that. So in 2008, I started working on molecular uh, techniques to test cyanide exposure uh, because I thought this is where we had to be. 
uh, because cyanides metabolize so fast. So I thought we had to come up with a molecular test. And we stopped. We stopped doing this in 2011 or 9 or so when, that, when, that paper, when we found out that paper was coming out. We kind of put it on the shelf. We brought this back off the shelf um, with Mystic Aquarium uh, last year. And so we've gotten some funding, and, and Alex has been working with Mystic's group on this. And, and we've got some really amazing results. And you don't need to read any of that because there's another poster for you to look at, right? Okay? So, um, so you can go down, and you can actually spend quite a bit of time talking to Ibru and, and, and Alex about this. Uh, it's a really important topic, and I would encourage you to, to read about it and ask a lot of questions, right? Um, we have so every time we do an experiment, we end up with a whole suite of questions that we end up asking, right? And we are just scratching the surface, right? We're just scratching the surface. This is very, very exciting uh, data, and it's, it's just coming, er, like every week or so, new stuff's coming. We're getting new data out, right? Um, and so, uh, so the next year of this ought to be really interesting. So, so back to the question. Is a cyanide detection test, you know, is that, is that a myth or reality, right? So right now, today, I would not be comfortable if I had fish samples that somebody was going to test with that, that, that method that, they, that BFAR uses in the Philippines, right? That, that's, it's not that it doesn't work, right? I think they've, it's, they've demonstrated it works really well in the laboratory on, on, on samples that have cyanide and fish tissue, right? Uh, the question is, is how much false positives are there out there, right? And also how much false negatives? And, and what's the, the validation process for that? Um, and so those questions need to be answered. Uh, and then we need quite a bit more data before, we can, before I can tell you that, you know, the, the, what we've been working on can be turned into some type of test that is usable. Most people I talk to, the, the, the peak interest I get from most people in the industry is not a test in the United States really, but it's a test in Indonesia and it's a test in the Philippines to help their governments and, their, and, their, and the importers and the exporters kind of figure out who is lying to them. I haven't talked to an exporter or an importer who wants to buy cyanide caught fish, right? I mean, certainly there are people who are supplying cyanide into the fisherman's pathway. We know this, the middleman and the, and the exporter, some of the exporters supply cyanide to the fishermen, right? But the fishermen, when you talk to them, they don't want to use cyanide. The exporters don't necessarily want to buy fish that are caught with cyanide. The importers certainly don't, and the hobbyists don't. But it's happening, right? And so how do you get around that? So there's been a lot of exciting work training fishermen to, uh, to collect fish with nets. This has been ongoing, right? But without some type of testing mechanism, you can't, you can't validate the supply chain, right? And there will always be room for people to cheat the system with cheaper fish. And that's what's been going on for the last uh, 50 years or so. Um, and so right now, we have, I don't have anything to show you that actually could work, right? I can tell you we can expose fish in the lab and we can test their plasma, blood plasma, and we can find thiocyanate. We've tested other species than the one I showed you, and some we can find it in their plasma fairly quickly, and some we have a lot of trouble finding it. Uh, so there's going to be a high level of species response to this. Some species are very sensitive to cyanide, and they, 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 they're, they don't take very much up or they die very quickly. Some are very robust and, and much less sensitive and have much more in their blood plasma for us to find. Uh, some metabolize it much faster. Uh, so, so there's a lot, lot more work to do before we can answer those questions. But we have been able to answer some questions around the validity of the proposed new test that was out there. Uh, this idea that can fish take up thiocyanate? They certainly can. Right? But there's not a lot in the water for them to be around because we know fish aren't excreting it. So, um, so that's a positive, uh, positive uh, thing, uh, po some positive information. 
so with that, uh, I, have a, I have about 15 minutes or so, and I would be happy to answer any questions you have. And um, I've been supported over the years from a lot of organizations that we've done a lot of really interesting projects with. And, uh, um, and uh, thank you for your attention.